Uh, We're continuing our series in James this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me uh, to James chapter 5. And I'm going to begin this morning simply by reading verse 12. Uh, Yes, that's right. I'll be reaching for the butter menthols after this scripture reading. James chapter 5, verse 12 is what we'll be going through this morning. So, albeit briefly, follow along with me. This is what James says. He says, But above all, my brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. One of my all-time favorite films growing up was Walt Disney's 1953 rendition of the tale of the boy who refused to grow up, Peter Pan. I cannot tell you how many times I watched this film growing up. I still get an incredible sense of nostalgia uh, watching it today or any of the other many Peter Pan films that have emerged over the years, especially uh, the 1991 film called Hook. Uh, If you haven't seen Hook, it's where Robin Williams features as an older Peter Pan. If you haven't seen it, that is your number one job for this holiday season, let me tell you. Uh, Truth be told, I've even requested the original novel from 1904 as a stocking filler this year. I'm a big Peter Pan fan. But the great antagonist in the tale of Peter Pan is a man by the name of Captain James Hook, right? And there's much that uh, can be said about the character of this particular pirate, but one thing that sticks out about Captain James Hook is that he often claims to be a man of his word. Am I not a man of me word, Mr. Smee, he often says. And yet, as you watch the film progress, you'll notice that Hook is particularly crafty with respect to this claim. You see, having captured Peter Pan's sidekick, Tinkerbell, Hook cunningly persuades her and even promises her that if she tells him where Peter Pan's hideout is, he will not lay a finger or a hook on Peter Pan. And so, persuaded that he'll do no harm to Peter Pan, she tells him where the hideout is. She, at the end of the day, just wants to get rid of Wendy. But in one of the scenes that follow, we find Captain Hook lowering a bomb into Peter Pan's hideout. And Mr. Smee kind of objects and says, Sir, wouldn't it be more humane-like just to slit his throat? You know, a good old pirate thing to do. And this is how Hook replies. He says, Ah, it would, Mr. Smee. But I have given my word not to lay a finger or a hook on Peter Pan. And Captain Hook never breaks a promise. You see, from his perspective, following the letter of the law, if you like, um, Hook technically didn't break his oath. He, He didn't lay a finger or a hook on Peter Pan. He used a bomb. But in the spirit of the law, he had every intention of harming Peter Pan, and so his words can rightly be called deceitful. Captain Hook did break a promise. And whilst what I'm getting at here might seem like slightly strange to us, let me tell you, this is the kind of craftiness in speech that the New Testament is very, very quick to denounce. In Jesus' day, this kind of deceptive wordsmithing to, to try and wriggle your way out of an oath was rife in Judaism, especially on the lips of the Pharisees. And we're going to see today that Jesus didn't pull any punches when it came to letting them know he did not approve most famously in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, picking up on the tradition of his older brother, as he so often does, James gives us basically a verbatim commandment here in verse 12, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. 
Yet, what's fascinating about James' words here is that they begin with this curious qualification, above all. Above all. That seems a little bit strange. How should we understand that? Well, commentators are a little bit divided about what to do with this above all. I mean, a lot of people say that, well, um, he's just preparing for a conclusion. Uh, in, in my community group, everyone knows that uh, community group is wrapping up when I say the words, conscious of time. <laughs> if you hear the words conscious of time, you'll know that discussion is about to end and we're going to move towards prayer. And perhaps that's what James is doing here. Well, above all, uh, as a kind of summing up statement, let me remind you, towards the end of the letter, do not swear oaths uh, in this manner. So perhaps he's doing something like that. Um, But others say it might even be connected to the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, that if you're suffering at the hands of rich tyrants who are oppressing you, maybe that kind of heat is likely to make you swear an oath that you really can't keep up to, to kind of keep your financial oppressors at bay. Maybe that's the context that James is speaking to. But then, then consider everything that we've covered in this series. Being doers of the word and not hearers only. Or the famous, faith without works is dead. Been a lot of ink spilled on that in church history. <laughs> Being patient through suffering and counting it all joy. Like, James, what do you mean above all? Have you, have you read the earlier parts of your letter? What do you mean that this statement here is the most important? I mean, on the surface, it seems too trivial. In, in AFL lingo, we'd call this a one percenter. It just seems like a little bit of a nothing statement in comparison to the things he said. But having said that, when you think about it, Speaking deceitfully and failing to live up to the things we say we will do, that's actually a pretty big deal. If we fail here, it's a direct reflection of our own personal integrity or lack thereof. Maybe James actually means above all. The jury's still out, but I think we need to pay particular attention to verse 12. But as we pay particular attention to this verse, it's important that we consider the first century context in which this commandment was given. Because historically, this verse has been interpreted by some Christians to mean, uh, especially Christians in the um, Anabaptist and Quaker tradition, that Christians shouldn't take oaths ever. Not under any circumstances, not even in a court of law. That's how some people have interpreted it. Now, let me say at the outset, God bless you if that's your understanding of this passage. Um, But what I want to do this morning is I want us to go on a bit of a journey from Old Testament through to the New and see how it was that the practice of oath-taking became so corrupt and why both James and Jesus before him were so adamant that we, the redeemed of the Lord, would not follow in a like manner. So that's what I want to do this morning as we work our way through uh, this one verse. So the first thing I want to do is do a bit of a survey of the Pentateuch. There's three verses I want us to consider, and we're going to see that oaths aren't always bad. I'm going to read from Leviticus 19, Numbers 30, and Deuteronomy 23. Thanks, mate. <laughs> so Leviticus 19:12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge... He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 22. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. 
You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, the common thread that we can observe uh, through these scriptures is that making an oath in the name of the Lord um, was not prohibited. Okay? It, it was only a problem when you didn't follow through with what you said you would do. Moses is saying that there may actually be circumstances where making an oath in the name of God is actually an appropriate thing to do. It's just that when you do, don't do it lightly. This is, this is no light task that you're embarking upon. But remember who you're swearing against. This is the Lord and he will not have his name profaned. In fact, in Exodus 22, Moses even goes on to list a very specific situation where swearing an oath would actually be perfectly reasonable. This is Exodus 22, 10 through 13. He says, If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them, both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. You see, Moses describes a situation where someone lends an animal to his neighbor, only to find out on return that this animal is dead. And at this point, the owner has no way of knowing how the animal died. I mean, for all he knew, it could have been the evil intent of his neighbor who deliberately killed the animal. I mean, there's no camera footage that you can bring in. There was no dog minding at Barkingham Palace in ancient Israel. Like there was, this is all you could do. So how, how do we determine what happened to the animal? Well, Moses says, okay, whether or not you should see... Seek compensation should be based on the following. He says, put your neighbor under oath and have him testify as to what happened to the animal. Like, was, was the death of the animal deliberate or did it happen by more natural causes or accidental causes? And because the sin of perjury, the sin of swearing falsely in the name of the Lord, was considered such a grievous sin, this was actually a very good method for determining the truth in certain situations, all right? It's not too dissimilar to how we would place our hand on the Bible and say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's effectively what Moses is prescribing here. So all that to say, when you look at the Old Covenant Scriptures, although taking oaths was cautioned as something you didn't want to enter into lightly, they weren't actually prohibited. In fact, they were, in very certain circumstances, prescribed as a means of promoting civil order. But along came the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And they began to reason this way. Well, we know it's a very grave sin to make an oath in the name of the Lord and then not follow through with it. I mean, that's a horrible thing to do. We dare not do that. But Here's an idea. What if we swear by things other than God? Ah, perhaps that's not binding anymore. And they would say things like this. Um, you can swear on the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, but not the contents of the Torah, as though there's a difference. <laughs> you, you, can, you can swear on the temple, just not on the gold in the temple. Um, you can swear on the altar, just as long as you don't swear on the gift on the altar. Only then would it be binding. And this is how the Pharisees reasoned, right? And this kind of mad reasoning became such an area of obsession for them that entire tractates in rabbinic literature were dedicated to unpacking all the intricacies of the ways that oaths were either binding or unbinding. 
And it was so meticulous that the pagans even looked on and went, what is wrong with you guys? This is ridiculous. It was heavily frowned upon. Let me give you another example of the ridiculous way they went about regulating oaths. I, uh, I spent my Friday afternoon reading sections of the Jerusalem Talmud. Way to spend a Friday, right? And um, what I'm about to read comes from later rabbinic tradition, but it's probably reflective of the kind of thing the Pharisees would have said in their day. In rabbinic literature, there's an entire tractate uh, that's called the Shavot. It's dedicated entirely to oaths, right? Here's just one example of the insanity. Okay, this is chapter 3, Mishnah 2. An oath that I shall not eat, so he's saying I will not eat, when he ate wheat bread and barley bread and spelt bread, he is liable only once, right? Technically, he, he only made one oath, and even though he violated it three times, it was only one oath to begin with, so liable once, one sacrifice. But, chapter 3, Mishnah 3, an oath that I shall eat either wheat bread, nor barley bread, nor spelt bread, when he ate wheat bread and barley bread and spelt bread, he is liable for each single one. Okay, now technically there was three separate oaths, so now he has to offer three sacrifices, right? Same offence, okay? Same amount of bread was consumed, but on a technicality, one required more sacrifice than the other. Do you see the madness? This is like a child saying their promise didn't count because it was a pinky promise or because they had their fingers crossed. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. And believe me, we're just scratching the surface. The volume I read online had 230 pages of this stuff, including commentary. But this is Judaism. But what's even more ridiculous? Why on earth are you making oaths about your consumption of bread? Why? I mean, maybe if you're a celiac making some promises to your GP, but in what other circumstances would you make oaths about this stuff? Really? This is so far removed from anything God would have to say on the matter. Jesus didn't pull any punches. Look at Matthew 23, 16 to 22. And Jesus goes after it. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. That's a key verse. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is saying, guys, you're missing the point. You say it's nothing to swear by the temple. <clears throat> Whose temple is it? What, what does the temple represent? Is it not the place where God Almighty is worshipped? You think he can swear by it and it means nothing and it's non-binding? That's completely illogical. You're swearing by me. And despite their craftiness, in one swift stroke, they've not only been deceitfully evasive but they've simultaneously broken the third and ninth commandment in one go do not use the lord's name in vain and do not bear false witness but that's what they were doing jesus was not impressed but this was the madness of judaism in the first century 
And it wasn't just limited to oaths. The Pharisees did the same thing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest for God's people, but they turned it into a day of paranoia and anxiety as they fretted over the thousand different ways that you could supposedly break the Sabbath. It was no longer a day of rest, let me tell you. Is it any wonder that Jews spoke of the yoke of the law as a heavy burden? That's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wanted to give them rest from madness like this. He says, Take my yoke upon you. I don't want you caught up in the false religiosity and ridiculous inventions of the Pharisees. Come and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He says, No doubt there is a cross to be carried if we follow Christ. No doubt there are trials to be endured and battles to be fought. But the comforts of the gospel far outweigh the cross. Compared to the service of the world and sin, compared to the yoke of Jewish ceremonies and the bondage of human superstition, Christ's service is in the highest sense easy and light. His yoke is no more a burden than the feathers are to a bird. His commandments are not grievous. His ways, his ways are ways of pleasantness, and all his paths are peace. You see, there's a very common misconception when people read the Sermon on the Mount that what Jesus is doing is making the law of God harder. As if he peered at the Ten Commandments and said, Oh, well, I'm going to up the ante on this thing. So you have heard it was like this. I'm going to make it harder. That's how some people would read the Sermon on the Mount. But What Jesus is actually doing is he's correcting the misconstrued understandings of the law that the Pharisees had placed on it. And he's reminding the listeners of the original intent and the heart of the Old Testament law. Look, for example, in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. He says, "You You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When God gave this commandment through Moses, it was given to promote the flourishing of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, But then the Pharisees, again, reduced this law to its lowest common denominator. Like, well, I've never committed physical adultery, so therefore I am completely innocent. I have kept these things since my youth. But then Jesus comes along and says, no... (laughs) Although you may have never committed physical adultery, the original intent of this law was to promote fidelity and flourishing in marriage, and even a wandering eye from the very beginning shows that your heart had adulterous lust at play. That's what Moses even intended when he gave it in Exodus 20. It's not that Jesus is making it harder, he's just reminding them of what it actually says. Jesus says the same thing about oaths. This is where James gets his theology from, Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you not can not For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What's Jesus saying? This is the takeaway for us. He's saying that oaths 
should 99.9% of the time be totally unnecessary for the people of God. The spirit or heart of this law is that we should be a people who are marked by truthfulness of speech at all times, whether we're under oath or not. He says, forget about oaths, just be people of your word. People should be able to examine our life and go, ah, that, that person right there, their word is their bond. And so by way of application for us, Project Church, could that be said of you? When you uh, tell your boss that you'll get something done, does it get done? <laughs> when we, husbands, when we tell our wives that we'll take the bins out, do the bins end up out? I'm preaching to myself, let me tell you. Do you ever say you'll do something and then employ some sort of evasive technicality tactic to supposedly permit your way out of it? Sometimes we fail to follow through. When you tell someone you'll meet them at the cafe at 10am, do you mean 10am or are you a bit of a shocker with respect to punctuality? (laughs) When you receive a Facebook invitation to a birthday party, do you click going or are you inclined towards the maybe button? You see, we all suffer from a contemporary commitment phobia. We put exit clauses in our contracts and our conversations and James says, no, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I'd be prepared to argue that if we, by God's grace, grew in this area of our lives, I think it would be such a countercultural witness that would spark our evangelism. I mean, it's, it's no secret in the, that in the Western world, it's becoming increasing, increasingly more hostile for Christians. The gospel is certainly a stumbling block and a rock of offense in this generation. Um, but wouldn't it be great if our work colleagues could look at us and go, hey, you know what, he waffles on about that Jesus character a fair bit, but Jesus is reliable. <laughs> he always follows through on the things he says he'll get done, and I would never question the veracity of the things he says. Wouldn't that be a cool thing, despite the hostility? I think the world, in a, in a commitment-phobic world, is starving for people like that. Turn with me to Psalm 15. I want to read verses uh, 1 through 4, but I want us to pay particular attention to the final sentence in uh, verse 4. There's a phrase in here that an old friend and mentor brought to my attention at a very young age um, when they were discipling me, and it It's just one of those ones that stuck with me ever since. Psalm 15, verse 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord. Here's the kicker. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The CSB translation puts it this way. says, who keeps his word whatever the cost. You see, it's all fun and games to say we're going to keep our word, but we need to be reminded that keeping our word is usually a costly exercise. What I'm about to share, I, I feel a tad uncomfortable with because it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but it was, it was the only analogy I could think of. And on this occasion, I think by God's grace, I got it right. Um, there's a thousand other things I get wrong, just ask Alice. But I think on this occasion, by God's grace, I got it right. Um, before I interviewed for my job here at the project, I was unemployed. 
And I came up for my interview the weekend after Alice and I came back from our honeymoon. And then about two weeks later, I was asked to come up to Toowoomba and and preach uh, to the project. Um, But the Sunday that Pete actually asked me to come up and preach, I was actually already scheduled in to preach uh, back on the Gold Coast at a church down there, back at Liberty Church. And um, let me tell you, I I was feeling under the pump. I'd just gotten married. I'm unemployed. I needed a job. And I was thinking, I've got to be able to preach this sermon. I've got to wriggle my way out of this, right? Um, I, I've got to go preach this sermon. How can I get out of it? Well, with Psalm 15 resonating in the back of my mind, I, I called the pastor and said, hey, mate, something's come up. There's, um, here's my situation. It would, it would help me a lot if you could find a replacement. Um, but know this, if, if you can't get someone to cover for me, I will swear to my own hurt and I'll come preach for you, even if it means I've got to delay this job thing. Right? I, in that sense... According to Psalm 15, I didn't have a choice. Now, by God's grace, because this pastor is a gracious man and a, and a good friend, he managed to find someone to cover for me. But he said to me later, he really appreciated that, if required, I would have followed through on my commitment. With God's help, I pray that you and I have more moments like that. Again, I get a thousand things wrong all the time. <laughs> the only analogy I could come up with. We need to keep our word, whatever the cost. Why doesn't the band come and join me? In closing today, I want to bring up another category of oath, which might help us to think about where else oaths are appropriate. This is an oath that God took to guarantee the things he has promised to us. I want to read from Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Look at the oath that God makes. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God Almighty is a man of his word. And he promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Who is his offspring? Jesus. We don't have to worry whether or not God's going to try and weasel his way out of this promise. He has sent his son, Jesus, who is the forerunner on our behalf and our great high priest who sacrificed himself on the cross for our sin, that we might be brought near to God. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And having redeemed us, he continues to be a man of his word and offers promises to us on the journey. I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. You can take those promises to the bank. His yes is yes. God Almighty is a man of his word. And with his help, I pray that we would be too. Let's pray.